Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing in our study of Acts, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9. So if you want to use one of the Bibles on the road there, that's going to be page 917 this morning, if you want to grab it and start turning there. And uh, while you're doing that, um, how many of you uh, use Twitter on a regular basis? Right, five of you, great. I don't use Twitter. I don't have a Twitter account. In fact, I I really don't use social media just a whole lot, but I I find it fascinating, especially when you consider um, how much social media has impacted and changed the world that we live in. I mean, without Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, can you imagine how little we would be aware of the, the news and the communication and the information that, that exists out there the way that we do today. I mean, it's really remarkable when you consider how much social media and the platforms of social media have changed the world, especially when they didn't even exist about 15 years ago. I mean, it's really incredible. So despite that, um, Twitter is actually the platform that almost never came to be. Um, so back in, in uh, 2005, there was a, um, a young man named Noah Glass. He was a tech entrepreneur, and he had this service, this concept that he came up with where you could call in to a phone number, and the recording that you gave as you spoke over the phone would automatically be uh, turned into a transcript and a, a audio file that would then get hosted on the internet somewhere. And so he took this idea... And he went to a man who was an employee at Google named Evan Williams, and he said, hey, I have an idea. Let's use this this tool that I've developed where you can call in and then have this video or this audio file hosted on the internet, and let's create this thing called a, a podcast, a podcasting platform. So they created this company called Odeo. And this was what they were going to do. And so for the first three uh, months or so of their business, things looked really good. This was a great concept. They felt like it was going to go somewhere until another tech company called Apple, you ever heard of them, said, hey, the, the 200 million plus iPods that exist are all going to get this brand new platform called Podcast on it. And so when that happened, Noah Glass and Evan Williams sat down and looked at each other and said, we're going to go out of business very, very quickly if we don't figure out something else to do because we have now been made irrelevant by this tech giant that just took our idea and has the equipment to deliver it to people. And so they went to their employees and they said, you guys have two weeks to come up with something brand new. And so they sifted through ideas for for a couple weeks, and there was one employee whose name was Jack Dorsey, and he said, how about this idea? I know we've had a a ton of ideas that we've thrown out there. What about this? How about we just create a service where someone can, can text in a message to a phone number, and then it'll get broadcast out to all their friends? And they said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't we create a prototype? And so they created a prototype called TWTTR. Twitter. So early on, there was this buzz about Twitter in the company. All the employees that worked there thought, this is really cool. This is really neat. They started racking up $400, $500 a month SMS bills on their phones. The company decided to start paying for it. But in reality, it was only them and their friends and maybe a few thousand people in the San Francisco area that were using it. They had a meeting 
couple months after the, the prototype was built with the executives of the company and the outside investors who had given about $5 million to Odeo, and they were looking for answers. They said, Apple's getting ready to come out with this, this podcasting service. We've given you a significant amount of money. What do you have to show for it? And they went, we built this thing called Twitter. That wasn't a, an acceptable answer to the uh, to the outside investors. And so short on answers for what they were going to do with Odeo and with outside investors looking at them and demanding answers for how they were going to be paid back for their investment, the executives at Twitter said, we're not really sure what to tell you. How about we pay you back all of the money that you've invested and we'll figure out what we're going to do next. So... Um, Odeo, not so, uh, long after that, stopped operating as a podcasting service. By all means, it looked like that had been a complete and total flop, and they invested themselves fully in developing Twitter. Think that was a good move? It was a great move. That $5 million that they paid back to their outside investors would be over $5 billion today. So why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because... There are times in life where there are critical pivots or changes that have to take place. There are times in life where you are confronted with the reality that if you don't do something in light of that reality will mean something drastically wrong, something horrible, something awful. So for the people at Odeo, they were confronted with the reality that if we don't do something different, we're not only going to be irrelevant, we're going to be out of work. And they decided in that moment that they had to do something completely different in order to survive. And no one could have dreamed that the change that they made to become Twitter would have created a social network that resulted in the impacting of billions of lives around the world on a daily basis. And that reality this morning as we come to Acts 9 is what we're going to see here in the Bible today. There is a confronting with reality. There is, there is a face-to-face -face meeting that takes place where, where the result of that demands that something different be done. Because if something different doesn't happen as a result of that, the consequences will be dire. And just like with Twitter, the result of confronting that reality will create something that no one at the time could have known would result in the impacting of billions of lives around the world. So let's take a look at verse 1 and see exactly what that is and how it plays out in the text here today. Look with me at Acts chapter 9, verse 1. We're just going to read verses 1 and 2 to start. It says, But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, so at the end of Acts chapter 8 last week, we saw that Philip 
who had been going around and, and proclaiming the gospel to people, he, he goes from meeting with this Ethiopian eunuch and he then throughout the cities of Judea is going and he's preaching the gospel. And by contrast here at the beginning of verse nine, while Philip is going around and breathing and speaking the gospel of life to those who desperately need it, Saul is going around and breathing death and murder and threats to those that he sees. And what we see here is that, that Saul is coming with permission of the high priest um, to, to, to bring men and women that he finds in Damascus back to Jerusalem. And so I think to understand the magnitude of what this really means, we, we have to see um, Saul's own words about what it is that is taking place here. Because throughout the book of Acts, there's actually two other times that, that Saul is going to um, recount and, and retell this story. And, and so I, I want us to look at those to kind of fill in some details here so that we can really understand the magnitude of what's happening here as Saul leaves to go to Damascus to find men and women and bring them bound back to Jerusalem. So um, if you uh, are open to Acts, go ahead and flip over to the right to Acts chapter 22. And we're going to look at verses 3 through 5, and then we're going to flip over to Acts 26. And we're going to see this account of, of Saul um, in, in a couple different ways as, as he recounts it. So looking at uh, chapter 22, verse 3, Paul says this, Saul says this about uh, what happened. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So the same account over in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 13, we see a little bit more detail there as well. It says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So when you see those two accounts of, of, of what it is that is actually going on here, it colors this text here in Acts chapter nine a little bit, doesn't it? Right? Because Saul isn't just going with letters into the synagogue going, I see that you're a Christian. You're going to have to come back to Jerusalem with me. Like that's not, that's not what he's doing. Saul is going around with permission from the leaders of Israel, casting votes that people who follow Jesus be put to death, approving it, enjoying it, wanting these people to be crushed and eradicated and made irrelevant coercing people into blaspheming so that he could take their own words and use them against them for their own demise. On a relentless pursuit in and out of synagogues, even to foreign cities, to find people to be punished. Saul was a bad hombre. 
to use Trump's words. Saul was intent on destroying the church. And so, as we see this here, this, this man who is on his way to Damascus, this is a dangerous man. This is a murderous man. This is a man who, outside of something happening different, would spend the rest of his life seeking to eradicate the name of Jesus. And at this point in Acts, there's nothing to convince us that anything else is going to happen. Nothing has stood in Saul's way until we come to verse 3. So let's read there, starting in verse 3. It says, Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So as Saul is on his way to Damascus, he gets hit with this sudden, incredible light, and he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at first, Saul doesn't know who's speaking to him, but the voice responds and says, I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. And so just like we did with with the first couple verses, I want us to see more detail about what it is that that is being said here over in Acts chapter 26. So in Acts chapter 26, verses 15 through 18, we see this. So this this the same event, um, Saul describes in, in other words here, he says, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me by faith in me. Now, I want you to notice something specific here about what happens. So, not only is there a blinding light that that comes to Saul, but the communication to him is that, Saul, you are going to be a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me. So, what that indicates to us is that this isn't just this cosmic gamma ray of light that beams Saul in the side of the face and knocks him to the ground. He is seeing something and someone in this instance to which he must go and be a witness. There's something purposeful and unique about what Saul is seeing here that will demand that he go and attest and be a witness to it. 
So I want you to think with me for a minute about other times in the Bible where we've seen God appear in brilliant, radiant light. If you're thinking about it, one of the things that might come to mind is is Exodus. Remember when Moses goes up on the mountain and he meets God and and the, the exposure that he has to God leaves his face glowing to the point where he has to wear a veil in front of the children of Israel. Or maybe you think about the Mount of Transfiguration, which we studied about in Mark, where where Peter and and James and John see Jesus in glory, and, and the brightness and the light is so incredible that they can't bear to look at it. What I want you to see and understand this morning is that Saul didn't just see light. What Saul saw was the full radiance of the glory of the risen Christ. He didn't just look up and have this blinding light in front of him. He looked up and in the blinding glory of the radiance of the glory of God, he saw the risen Jesus. Saul is now a witness to the resurrected Christ. Saul who has made it his mission and his aim to eradicate the name of Jesus, has just seen Jesus in the brilliance of his glory. Saul's destination hasn't changed. He still goes to Damascus, but his destiny has. So what does all of that mean for us? The first thing I want us to see today is this. When Jesus saves us, He stops our old way of life and he provides us a new direction. Saul was living in spiritual blindness, thinking that he was stopping the enemies of God, all while he himself was an enemy of God, existing as a child of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in our sin by making us alive together with Christ. He looked at Saul and said, in the midst of your rebellion against me, my love for you will save you and bring you out of spiritual blindness and into life. He stopped Saul on a path of clear and certain eternal destruction and then gave him new life. And he didn't just pat him on the back and go, okay, Saul, now that you're on my team, uh, just be good. I'll see you in 40 years when you get to heaven. Don't mess this up, all right? We good? Because that's not the nature of salvation, church. The nature of salvation is not God stopping us in our sin and providing us new life and then saying, it doesn't matter what happens moving forward. This is your ticket out of hell. Do whatever you want to until the bell rings until your time comes, until you assume room temperature. No, Jesus looked at him and he said, not only am I saving you, but he says, get up and go into the city because I have something for you to do. The nature of our salvation is not just saving you and I from something. The nature of our salvation is saving us to something a life now lived in gratitude for the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Saul 
after seeing Jesus for who he is, could not go back to doing what he was doing before. He couldn't. There's no way that he could go back to doing what he was doing before. Because once he saw him for who he truly is, it changed everything. Is that true for you today? Is that true for you today? Outside of showing up here on Sunday mornings, is your life noticeably different from those around you because of your experience of knowing and seeing Jesus for who he is? Are the things that you love governed by the fact that Jesus has rescued and redeemed you in the midst of your sin and given you new life so that you don't love the things that you used to love? You don't love as the world loves. You don't prioritize as the world prioritizes. You don't think as the world thinks. You don't use your money or your time or your children or your spouse in a way that is unaware of what God has called us to. Because you've seen and experienced Jesus and it has changed everything. Does your life, does your thoughts, do your actions reflect a desire to be holy as Christ is holy? Or do they reflect a a desire to fit in so that you don't stand out and seem weird or different at school if you're a student, in the workplace, if you're working, at home, among your family members? When Jesus saves us, and look, I'm not Jesus shaming you guys. There are so many days where I live so much more like the world than I do a man who loves this. And when I do that, it's a, it's a reminder to me that, that there is more that God is calling me to. When Jesus saves us, he stops our old way of life and he reorients us in a new direction. Once we've seen Jesus for who he is, we cannot unsee it. Let me give you a quick example. Um, Most of you are are probably aware of this, but for those of you who don't, um, I'm going to ruin the Christmas season for you. Okay? So I had a friend uh, in college who loved design and marketing and hidden messages. And um, he, he came to me and, and he said, hey, Chris, guess what? I was like, what? He's like, do you know about the hidden logo in the FedEx logo? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, n- no. And he said, no, 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 look real quick. Look between the E and the X. What do you see there? And I was just like, oh, there's an arrow. <laughs> and to this day, To this day, I cannot see a FedEx truck on the road and not immediately look at that. And if you have never noticed that before, you will never be able to see a FedEx truck again and not think about that. I'm so sorry. And I'm ruining the Christmas season for you because there's like five FedEx trucks in my neighborhood at any given moment in time. I mean, they are everywhere. But why do I tell you that? It's because in that instance, it's, it's easy for us to see. With, with this concept of seeing Jesus as he is, it's, it's sometimes hard for us to understand, but, but the realities are the same. That once you've seen that something exists, once you've seen something as it is, you can't unsee it. If you have seen Jesus as the glorious risen Savior who has rescued you from your sins, you can't unsee that. You don't get the ability to go, that's not important to me today. 
I don't care about that when it comes to my family. I don't care about that when it comes to my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. I don't, I don't see that. I don't think about that when I'm at work and people are talking in, in rude or crude terminologies or bashing their spouses or talking about what a mess their kids are. I just jump in and participate. You don't get the ability to unsee the reality of who Jesus is. You don't get to continue in life as though there's no consequence whatsoever for Jesus being your savior. And so for Paul, he experienced something that he could never unsee and change the direction of his life. There was no going back. So let's see how that plays itself out here in the rest of Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So the next thing I want us to see in this passage here today is that true obedience will lead us to do uncomfortable but right things. True obedience will lead us to do uncomfortable but right things. What do I mean by that? You look back at verse 10, Jesus appears to Ananias and he gives us the he gives him this commission. He says, go to this man, Saul, who is praying and lay your hands on him that he may receive his sight. Now at this point, Ananias is not a spring chicken. He's not unaware of, of what's going on. This is not his first rodeo. He's not like, okay, cool. Sounds good. You know, what's he wearing? Is he, is he wearing purple today? Is he wearing green? Like, how am I going to know who this Saul is? He knows who Saul is. So his hesitancy here is not surprising. I think any of us in Ananias' situation would have been like, um, are, you sh- are you sure? Like, Jesus, I've heard about this guy. I know what he's doing. How can you send me to go and, and meet with him? Don't you know what the ramifications of that is going to be? I mean, this guy may open up his eyes and grab something to, to, to bind me and send me back to Jerusalem so I could be killed. I, 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 I appreciate that. Thanks, Lord. That's awesome. Are you sure? But the Lord instructs him to go. And he says, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. And so Ananias goes. He doesn't go begrudgingly. He doesn't go half-heartedly. He could have placed his hands on Saul and run away, but we don't see that. He goes and he uses a familial term when he lays his hands on Saul doesn't he? He says, brother Saul. 
Do you think that those words would have been difficult for him to say? I know they would be for me. But Ananias goes and extends friendship and grace to Saul. We see a little bit more of of what Ananias says in Acts 22, verses 12 through 16, the same telling of of the account that that we've seen uh, a few other instances from. And and starting in verse 12, I want us to see what else it is that, that Ananias says here. So verse 12 says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Ananias not only obeys Jesus by going to Saul and laying his hands on him, he looks at at Saul and says, let me remind you what God is calling you to and let me be a tangible encouragement to you to follow through on obedience by baptism and repentance. Let's be clear here, church. This was not an easy or comfortable thing for Ananias to do. I mean, envision, envision the Lord telling you to go to someone who has it out for you at work or your worst enemy, or if you're a student, um, a, a bully at school, or someone who has deeply and profoundly wronged you in the past and saying, hey, I want you to go to that person. I want you to love that person. I want you to pray over that person. And I want you to invite them into the thing that matters most to you. I mean, for most of us, we would sit back and look at that and go, I don't really feel comfortable doing that, Lord. Imagine looking in the face of someone who, given the opportunity to yesterday, would have gladly seen that you be killed. And instead of harboring anger and resentment and frustration, looking at them and going, I love the Lord and he loves you too. And so I am going to proclaim over your life goodness and mission and purpose so that you might walk in obedience. I mean, for most of us, that's inconceivable. It's inconceivable because we won't even do it for people who live next to us or who we work with that we like let alone people that we dislike or hate or are afraid of. Church, there are going to be times in our life where to obey Christ means doing the right thing, even if it makes us uncomfortable, even if it puts us at risk. I mean, you all know this. Think about a time in your life where you've had to go to your spouse, if you're married, and confess sin to them, knowing this is not going to end well. This is going to hurt for a short term, but, but over time, this will get better. Or how many of you have had to speak up for what's right, even though you knew that it would mean people would look down on you or people would would get angry with you or when you've had to give sacrificially when funds were already tied or apologize and own up for something that you've done wrong, even though you know that doing so is going to be embarrassing or self-deprecating and you've gone, Lord, this is the right thing to do and it's uncomfortable, but I'm going to do it anyway. Following Jesus is not about living your life in peace and security and great relationships and continual happiness and good feelings. Jesus' invitation was not to pick up your phone and daily Instagram your Jesus jam with a hashtag blessed. 
Duck lips optional. Bible in the background, journaling notebook next to it. Crushing it through Philippians today. I mean, there are days where that's going to happen. But there are also days where to get up and obey Jesus is going to feel like a dying to yourself. It's going to feel like death. But that's why Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Obedience, some days, will feel like death. And hear me, not every day or week or month is going to be hard, but some of them will be. And some of the things that God is calling us to, some of the things that God is calling you to today may not feel comfortable. But a life of obedience to Jesus is more concerned with doing what's right and what is eternally consequential than doing what's comfortable. Ananias experienced that fully well. But through his obedience, he got to participate in one of the most amazing things that happened in the Bible. And I think for some of us today, we need to understand that our lack of obedience isn't just something that is robbing us from experiencing the benefit and the joy of serving God. It's robbing us of the opportunity to see incredible things that he wants to do in us and through us and around us. Obedience is never just an isolated thing. There are always ripple effects to walking with Jesus in obedience. So, Saul is now a changed man. He's sitting in Damascus with permission from the chief priest to go into the synagogues and capture those who are following Jesus. And Saul does go into the synagogue, just as he'd planned, but now he goes with a very different purpose. Read with me starting in verse 19, Acts chapter 9. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So before we unpack this verse, these verses, I want to take just a minute to talk about Saul here because I think it will make sense of why he's able to go into the synagogues and so powerfully argue and debate that Jesus is the Christ. And then I think it will also give us some context for the rest of this book. Um, so for the next two to three weeks as we're going through Acts, we're really not going to hear about Saul much. And so um, when we get to Acts 13 and, and Saul kind of comes back on the picture, I want us to have some context uh, for, for who he is. So um, many times people think that Saul was Saul until he became a Christian here in Acts chapter 9, and then he changed his name to Paul. But they're actually the same name. Um, Saul is the Hebrew rendering of the name, and Paul is the Greek or Roman rendering uh, of the name. And so from Acts 7 up until Acts 13, when he's ministering among the Jews, he goes by his Hebrew name, Saul. And 13 on, when he's ministering among the Gentiles and the Greeks, he goes by Paul. And then that's how he'll kind of carry on moving forward in the Bible. Just a little bit of history about Paul. Paul was from a city called Tarsus, which was this huge cultural and economic hub in the Roman province of Cilicia. And uh, if you were a young man growing up in Tarsus, one of the things that you would be exposed to was Greek philosophy. This town kind of had a, a history of being um, a home of, of philosophic development. Um, they would teach boys who were between the ages of 6 and 14 how to read and write Greek so that they could study the Greek poets and the great philosophers of Greece. 
And so in addition to that, um, if you were a citizen of Tarsus, um, more oftentimes than not, you were also granted um, citizenship of Rome as well. And, and we'll see as we go through Acts that Paul was a Roman citizen, which gave him this incredible freedom and this incredible benefit as, as he went around these cities because he could appeal to Rome for adjudication and it would be granted. You were exempt from crucifixion. You had protected status among any of the cities of the Roman Empire. I mean, it was this remarkable benefit to him. But Paul, in addition to being a uh, a man who grew up in Tarsus and able to read and write Greek and familiar with the philosophers and ability to debate among them as well, was also a Jew. He says in, in uh, Philippians 3 that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, which is King Saul's tribe. And last week when we were talking about the Samaritans, we talked about how after Rehoboam sp- uh, split the kingdom, you had these tribes that defected and went away, and many of them became the Samaritans. Well, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the faithful ones that, that stuck around and supported um, the, the right king of, of Judah. And so um, we also see in Philippians 3 that, that Paul spoke Hebrew, um, that he belonged to the Pharisees. And, and as we read a little bit earlier, uh, Paul uh, said that he studied under the, the rabbi Gamaliel, who was this powerful and influential leader that we met back in Acts chapter 5. So as a Hebrew boy and as a Pharisee, um, Paul uh, also would have been well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. He would have had most of the Old Testament uh, memorized even. Um, and so the combination of these things, as we, we talk about Paul, as we're going to see him throughout the, the course of, um, of Acts, um, it made Paul kind of the Swiss army knife of the early church. I mean, think about it. You've got a guy who is able to speak Hebrew and Greek, You've got a guy who's familiar with both cultures. You've got someone who's well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, and yet he can go and he can reason with the best of the Greek philosophers because of his upbringing. He's a citizen of Rome, but he's also a welcome participant and, and keeper of the law of Moses in Jerusalem. I mean, there is not a place that this man can't go where he's unequipped to be able to handle whatever's thrown at him. I mean, it's just remarkable that this man with his upbringing, with his knowledge, with his ability is, is the one that God chose to be his instrument before the Gentiles and before the kings and before the people of Israel. Because when you see him here in, in Acts 9, going into the synagogue and beginning to reason with people that Jesus is the Christ and confounding people with his ability to prove that, you've got to understand Paul is walking in and he's a dangerous debater. There's nothing this man does not know. There's no argument that you could bring against him that he wouldn't be able to say, no, no, no. But what about this? What about this? What about this truth? And so throughout the course of the book of Acts, we're going to see that that Paul uses this incredible ability to make much of Jesus. And so um, what I want us to see this morning then, starting in verse 23, is this. What happens as Saul begins to proclaim the Christ. What we're going to see is this. The persecutor becomes the persecuted. Look at verses 23 through 31 with me. It says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
And he spoke and disputed with the Hellenists, who were the Greeks. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. So no sooner has Saul turned to the Lord than the people that supported him in the past turned on him. He's now persecuted for his faith. He leaves Damascus, and we won't see this here. It just kind of jumps into, into Saul going to Jerusalem, but there's actually a period of about three years where, where Saul leaves Damascus and goes to Arabia to study and comes back to Damascus before he goes into Jerusalem. And so the last thing I want us to see here this morning as we look at what happens to Saul in light of his conversion and in light of him beginning to proclaim Jesus is this. We should not be surprised when our obedience encounters opposition. We should not be surprised when our obedience encounters opposition. And for us, that opposition may not necessarily come from external sources like it did for Saul, um, who, who from this moment forward will seem to face persecution and opposition everywhere he goes. Sometimes the opposition to our obedience can be internal. It can be our old sinful nature inside of us, as Galatians 5 says, preventing us from doing what we ought to do. There can be this internal battle that we have, church, as as believers, where we know what we ought to do. We know that we ought to obey Jesus. We know that we ought to live like people who can't unsee him in his glory and the benefits of his salvation. And yet internally, we face this battle and this struggle to listen and obey and love the Lord and live a life of consequence for him. There is a real and daily battle that you and I face to walk in obedience to Jesus. We will always face opposition if we really intend to obey the Lord. And so we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. So what happens now that Saul, this persecutor of the church, has believed in Christ? We'll start laying in the plane here this morning. It says in verse 31 that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in fear of the Lord, not Saul, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. As we've seen before, and as we've said, God's powerful, unstoppable movement to save men and women continues on. Saul stood in the way, God redeemed him, brought him into the fold, and his movement continued on. There is nothing that will stop what God intends to do to save people and bring them into his family. It hasn't stopped for the last 2,000 years. It won't stop moving forward. We're not going to get into the, uh, the rest of Acts chapter 9 here because it's going to be about Peter and about how Peter goes and does these amazing miracles to, to heal and to restore someone to life. And, and the consequence of those things is that, that now the apostles are beginning to go out of Jerusalem and, and to people who are on the fringes. And we'll see over the next couple of weeks that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles as well and finally and fully be proclaimed. And I know as we get into to Acts chapter 10, you know, we'll see this, this element of, of Peter's ministry. But here's where I want to wrap it up for today. If the leaders at Odeo had not made the shift that they did, we may never have known about Twitter today. They saw something that demanded that they do something different. How has that rung true for you in light of seeing Jesus for who he is? In light of seeing who he is and the fact that he has called you to something different, how has that rung true for you? 
The world would never be the same as a result of Saul coming to faith in Jesus, as a result of of Saul seeing Jesus for who he truly is. How is the world around you, your family, your workplace, your kids, your spouse, how are they different? How is your world different because of your experience of seeing Jesus for who he is? Who in your life, maybe you asked this morning, who in your life may not know about Jesus outside of you being the one to faithfully go and tell them? My prayer is that as a church, we'll be a people who live like those, who, like Saul, saw Jesus for who he is and couldn't unsee it, who were given a commission to to go and make disciples and, and say, how can I not do that? In light of what I know, how can I not do that? That we would live lives of gratitude and obedience as a result, even if that's uncomfortable, even if that means that we face opposition, because we know that there's a much more important mission at stake just as Saul did. My prayer this morning, especially as we go into the Christmas season, is that we wouldn't treasure Christ just as a family or as individuals or as a church family, but we would seek to join in this mission that we've continued to see over and over again as we've been studying through Acts to make sure that the world around us and our communities around us and our neighbors around us see and treasure Jesus as well. Because once we've seen him for who he is, it changes everything that we do. Would you join me in prayer this morning?